Hi, I'm Kat Holbrook, cook, lover of British produce and host of The Doorstep Kitchen. Welcome and thanks for tuning into the show which celebrates the best food and drink found on our doorsteps. On this show, I speak to Nick Saltmarsh of Hodmadods, who grow and supply British pulses and grains. So if you're questioning the air miles on your quinoa, then think again. It grows right here in the UK. I think people are turning back to these ingredients and seeing that pulses really are an exciting ingredient. And for the last time, our amazing Forager Fergus joins us to speak about a wild edible ingredient. The main thing with birch is the sap. So the sap rise in the birches is really, in the southeast of England anyway, from the end of February until the beginning of April. First though, here's a quick update on all things food. So last week was the 2021 Michelin stars. London has two new three-star restaurants, which is really exciting. So Hélène Daroz at the Connaught is now three stars, along with um, Core by Claire Smith, who's based in Notting Hill. Plus there's a whole string of one and two-star restaurants that have been added, such as Behind in East London, which was only open for 20 days and has already won a star, which is incredibly impressive. There's also a host of Bib Gourmands, which are just awards for basically really great food. Um, so people like Fallow have won that. They're based on Helen Street and are kind of a sustainable focused restaurant. Next, we have Valentine's Day coming up. And I've seen a lot of really fantastic sort of restaurant DIY boxes that you can get at home. Um, so a couple that took my fancy were uh, one from Townsend, which is a really great restaurant in Whitechapel. So head chef Joe Fox has created a menu with some really nice seasonal ingredients. Um, there's the Townsend cheddar scone, which is absolutely delicious, like one of their signature snacks. Then they have a salt-baked crapadine beetroot, a slow-cooked short rib of beef and some dauphinoise potatoes. Uh, I think it's really good value. It's £60 for two. And then a new Islington restaurant um, called The Nook has a menu that includes lobster and prawn cannelloni, baked cheese with truffle honey and things like wild mushroom or arancini, which is £85 for two. I just thought that sounded really good as well. But there's so many fantastic boxes. So if you want to do something a little different for Valentine's Day, have a look um, what's out there because there's so much and it'd be, I think it's just really great to support the restaurants at the moment. And then looking to the future and hopefully when things open up again soon, I've seen that there's going to be a new restaurant called Chameleon. Obviously COVID dependent, we're not quite sure when it's going to open, but apparently this year it's in Marlebone and it's set within the grounds of a grade one listed former church. Um, so there's going to be a restaurant headed up by Israeli chef Elior Balbul. And apparently the restaurant features sort of these amazing outdoor greenhouses and a kind of tented lounge area so yeah it sounds really exciting and quite kind of quite transportive so I think that'd be quite a nice one to be heading out to when we can. So those are your three foodie things on your doorstep this week. Now I'm joined by a man who is passionate about pulses and bonkers about beans. He's made them his life and co-founded a company dedicated to growing all types of them in Britain called Hodmadods. Here is Nick Saltmarsh's story.
Thanks for joining me, Nick. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Ray. Very much. Good. Um, it looks like I've seen uh, Hodmodods on, on Instagram and I've seen lots of cooks um, use your products. It seems like actually uh, maybe COVID has sort of helped your business come along. Has that made a difference? It has made a difference. Um, I mean, we've we've always supplied a, a wide range of customers from individuals through our website to um, restaurants and um, caterers and retailers and so on. So obviously COVID um, meant that suddenly our, our restaurant catering sales disappeared altogether because those businesses were, were really, suffered really badly and couldn't operate at all. But um, at the same time, we saw our online customers, or we saw a lot more online customers um, coming to us. So it opened up opportunities to, to reach a lot more consumers very directly. Yes, that's that's the side of the business that I've definitely seen taken off. Um, I didn't actually realise you supply to restaurants. So yeah, obviously, that's going to have a huge impact. Yes. But how did you get into it, into this then? Because I feel like this is quite a niche, um, but it's a great niche. <laughs> well, myself and my two colleagues, William and Josiah, with whom we, we started the business together back in 2012, we were previously working together um, for a, a small not-for-profit organisation called East Anglia Food Link. Okay. And that organisation was all about supporting and promoting and developing local food and helping to build local food supply chains, looking at um, school caterers, for example, and trying to encourage them to use food more locally, but also helping farms to reach more direct local markets. And we, we worked on a number of projects um, and then in about 2010, we were approached by the Transition Town Group in Norwich, so a small community group focused on looking at ways to address climate change and build a more resilient society. And they wanted us to help them understand what the ideal local, sustainable and resilient diet would look like. So we looked at... Um, uh, a full diet and the extent to which that could be provided for from the agricultural hinterland of Norwich. And one of the key things we identified was that there are huge advantages to be had from moving from uh, animal protein to more vegetable protein. And yet, at the same time, um, 10 years ago, there was very little vegetable protein available that was from local or even from British production. Mm. The vegetable protein we you tend to find in the shops was almost all imported even our our favorite pulses as a nation baked beans are all made with imported beans um and in fact more generally um the sort of ambient foods that you find in in whole food shops or in the, the sort of grocery section of supermarkets they weren't available from local production in the same way that um fresh produce and dairy and meat was you know already by then 10 years ago there was a, a big presence for local or, or British product yeah so we thought there's an opportunity here and there's a need here to do something to get these foods that essentially come from British arable farming rather than from livestock farming or from horticulture or dairy farming these foods from arable farming there's there's a need to look at the supply chains and look at what needs to be done to build more local supply chains and that prompted us through the project we were doing with Transition Norwich to look at um, trialling British grown beans to see if people would like them and would eat them. 
and the feedback was overwhelmingly positive that people would like to eat them. Um, and yet when we then talked to people in the supply chain who might work with these beans to make them available, there was a lack of enthusiasm. I think people saw them as an untested product. So essentially we realised that if we wanted this to happen, we'd have to do it ourselves. So we, we founded Hogmadod initially with the very simple and focused aim of getting British grown beans back into British kitchens. Great. Um, so what does Hodmadod mean? Because it's a funny word, but I love it. It is a funny word. It's, a, it's an old East Anglian word. So okay. the three of us who started Hogmadod, we're all East Anglian by origin. And we, we liked the word as something that reflected a sort of forgotten part of our, our cultural heritage in the same way that the beans are were a, a forgotten part of our heritage. The word hobmadod actually means, depending where you are and who you talk to, it, it can mean hedgehog, it can mean snail, it can mean curly hair or even ammonites, the fossils. Mm. And what all of these things have in common is that they're, they're sort of round and curled up. And at a push, you could see a bean um, as sort of curling up in its pod in a similar sort of way. Yeah, so no, it's a great name. We felt it had those sort of resonances and um, you know, it's also unusual and distinctive and, and memorable, we hope. Yeah. So you, you said that, um, you know, we've kind of forgotten our, our history to do with beans. So can you just explain? Because I associate the UK, you know, with crops like wheat and barley, which our fields are full of. But, I mean, are we new to growing beans and pulses? You suggest that we aren't. No. So it is a it is very much a forgotten crop. Mm. And yet it is one that has been grown in Britain for thousands of years. Um, beans and also peas would have been brought to Britain from the Fertile Crescent by the very first farmers three or four thousand years ago. And they would have been grown in uh, alongside wheat and barley and oats. Um, and the, the beans and the peas and the peas would generally have been eaten dry, the beans too, um, unlike the sort of fresh or frozen peas that we're used to eating now. Yeah. But as dried pulses, um, the dried seeds of the beans and peas would have provided a year-long source of, year-round source of protein because both are about 25% protein, um, so they're very high in protein and would have provided that in our diets for thousands of years. Um, meat and dairy would have been much more just luxury products for occasional feasting. And it was only when society changed, when the country became more affluent, when agriculture developed, and particularly when food storage developed, that we were able to move to getting most of our protein requirements from meat and dairy rather than from the beans and peas. Mm, okay. So we turned our backs on dishes like pottage or peas pudding that we would have eaten on a on a daily basis and um, develop you know embrace the sort of diet that we're we're more used to and what then happened was that the the beans in particular became seen as the food of the poor because the only people who had to keep eating them were those who were too poor to afford meat and so they became stigmatized and seen as a, a low status food People didn't want to be seen eating them. They completely dropped out of any sort of written recipes or accounts of, of the food we ate. And um, it was only really in the 20th century, particularly with rationing during, during and after the war, that we came back to pulses, but particularly came back to, to baked beans, um, mm. which were, were very different, made with the, the sort of new world fasciolus beans and that can't easily be grown here. So we 
the, the beans that replaced the, the original old world fava beans in our diet were, were ones that almost entirely had to be imported. Yeah. God, it's fascinating because um, in series one, we actually spoke to James Wettler, who's a goat farmer, and he actually told a very similar story about how goats, everyone, it was goat and sheep, and they're kind of equal um, in people's diets. And then they realised they could export wool, so sheep were more valuable because you get three commodities out of sheep. Mm. So sheep were the, it was a sign of wealth, and then goat was the sign of, of being poor um and this seems like this is a a kind of quite similar uh story with beans which is yeah fascinating yeah and i think there's there's a really interesting parallel there and i mean i think we we generally forget that these these sort of cultural assumptions which can be very deeply embedded really affect what we eat and what we choose to eat and you know even now um you know a long time after beans were in this country you know really the food of the poor they're still seen and and certainly were until the last sort of five or ten years um still seen as rather sort of worthy dusty Mm. food that that wasn't seen as exciting but i think that that really is changing now i think with the um the realization that the you know the very wide realization now that we you know do need to eat a a lot more plant-based foods um for the sake of climate change, among other things. Um, I think people are turning back to these ingredients and seeing that pulses really are an exciting ingredient. They they can be used in all sorts of different ways. They're cooked all around the world. So there's all sorts of dishes from every part of the world that use pulses. Mm. Um, and we can get them back into our diets um, you know, in, in a big way and, and you know, in, they make for really tasty and enjoyable meals. Yeah. So um, I've had a look at your website and you've got a lot of products. How many How many have you got? We have, uh, I think, just over 100 products now. So Yeah, wow. It's, yeah, that's it, incredible. It's grown significantly <laughs> considering that we started with just, well, when we launched, we actually had four products. Um, having originally started the business purely focused on fava beans um by the time we launched our first products we had um four different products which were very simple packs of dried split fava beans uh but also whole fava beans because like most pulses they can be used either as an intact seed with the seed with the skin on or you can take the skin off and then you have the split pulse, which cooks very differently. Um, mm. You know, cooks much more quickly. It doesn't necessarily need soaking. Cooks down to a sort of soft, dar-like texture. So it can be used in, in different ways. And alongside those two types of fava bean, we um, had discovered, we quickly discovered a, an amazing pea called the Carlin pea, which is a historic um, dark brown dried pea that... Um, is, is just a fantastic ingredient. It, it's like a chickpea, but even tastier and, and delicious. And you can use it just like a chickpea. It has a sort of nutty taste and keeps quite a firm texture when it's cooked. Um, um, absolutely mm. good for hummus, but good for falafel or, you know, cooking whole and having in salads or with roasted vegetables or putting in curries. Um, so and, and that was the third product. And then the fourth one was the Marifat pea, which is the pulse that we've kept eating most in this country the pulse from from british farming but we almost entirely eat it just as mushy peas and and almost always with fish and chips and we felt that a, a an ingredient as 
with as much potential as the Marifat P deserve to be seen in a different light and used in different ways. So we we set about selling that and in encouraging people to use it in in more various ways than, than just mushy peas. <laughs> Not that we've got anything against mushy peas, they're absolutely delicious. So th those were the first four products we launched, but that really proved to be a catalyst to quickly discover that farmers either were already growing different crops, but they weren't finding their way into onto the British market and into our kitchens. Often things would be grown almost entirely for export. Um, but also that farmers had the potential to, to grow new crops or to bring other historic crops back into production. So we quickly developed a network of farmers who were keen to grow a very wide range of different crops. And so over the last eight years, we've, we've grown our range from those four products to over a hundred, which are all, all foods made from the crops of British arable farms. That's what everything we, we do has in, has in common. Lovely. Um, so yeah, things like the Carlin pea and the fava bean, they sound quite exotic to me, but as you've explained, like we have been growing those for thousands of years. Um, and then there's also some which are more well-known and there's things like quinoa. So yeah, I mean, there's such a huge variety and ones that you wouldn't even think would grow in the UK, but it's quite fascinating. Um, quinoa, you know, that we, uh, it's Peru, isn't it, that we normally get our quinoa from. Um, and you can, what, do you grow it in Norfolk? Uh, it's actually, most of our quinoa is grown in Essex. Okay. Um, so we, we work with a, a number of different farmers who are, many of them are in East Anglia, Suffolk, or where we're based, or Norfolk or Essex, which are the, the next door counties. But we also work with farmers further afield um, mm. in other counties of Britain. And the, the quinoa, um, yes, you're right, it's, it's generally imported from South America, um, although over the last... 10 years production has started up in almost every part of the world um, because it's it's really quinoa has been seen as as a crop that has huge potential in producing a good yield of a food that is very nourishing and very nutritious mm. um, and and you're right as well and it's a it's a strange quirk that um, of our products quinoa is probably more familiar to most people than um the traditional British crops of fava beans and, and carlin peas, for example. Yeah. Um, but the, the farmer, um, or the, the farmers, Peter and Andrew Fairs, who grow most of our quinoa in Essex, um, they've actually been growing quinoa for more than 30 years now. Um, but until recently, they were growing it purely um, as a cover crop for sort of conservation mixes for wild birds or for game birds. Um, and it wasn't being grown for human consumption, but what they've what they've managed to do more recently is is select varieties that are that don't have the bitterness that older varieties of quinoa naturally have. So, the the sweeter, less bitter varieties are, are good to eat with minimal processing, whereas the the older varieties need thorough washing or polishing before they're before they can be used. Yeah, um, I just wouldn't expect the climate of the UK to be able to support all of these hundreds of different types of beans and pulses um because yeah you you do think that you do think quinoa is exotic um but is it do we have just a great climate for growing these kind of things we have a great climate for certain crops um so i mean as far as pulses go the british climate is is perfect for growing peas um it's probably the best place in the world to grow peas um it's also great for fava beans our traditional bean 
but a lot of other pulses can be quite a struggle to grow here. So the, the new world beans, the fasciolus beans, like the, the baked beans um, or the cannellini or borlotti beans, they can be difficult to grow here because we have a, a shorter growing period than um, other climates. So the challenge is to get the, the crop to ripen and, and then dry because it has to be harvested dry. Mm. Um, you have to get it to ripen and dry before the weather turns to sort of cool and damp in the autumn. So that can be the challenge there. But we crops that grow within a shorter period, like the bean, the fava beans and the peas, but also a whole range of cereals, um, do grow really well here. Um, I should clarify that we don't have hundreds of different crops. We have hundreds of different products because we do different things with each crop. Yeah. So, yeah. so the fava beans, for example, we started with the split and the whole fava beans, but we quickly realised that they could be roasted to make a ready-to-eat snack inspired by Spanish habas frutas. Mm. Um, you can mill them to make a fava bean flour. Um, you can even ferment them to make a, a what we call a, a fava bean umami paste, which is like a miso but made with British fava beans rather than soybeans. Yeah, I actually really wanted to speak to you about that one. Um, it's fantastic. It's, it's just got such an amazing rich flavour. Yeah, I saw that um, Claire Hargreaves, um, the food writer, is doing her Eat British Challenge, only eating British this year. Yes. And she has been enjoying your fermented fava bean paste. So yeah, that's incredible because it's a British version of miso. Uh, absolutely. And um, I mean, we work with a fermenter in Wales who, who also produces miso. But, um, you know, he said that he thinks that the fava bean, if anything, produces a, a more complex and and interesting flavour than soya beans do. So it's produced in, in exactly the same way as, as miso, um, but produces a you know distinctively different product, but with that with that incredible umami flavour and almost a sort of sherry flavour that comes out in the fermentation. Gosh, it sounds absolutely incredible. It, um, it, it's really good. And and you can use it to sort of add that depth of flavour to almost anything in the mm. kitchen, you know, once you once you get used to it being part of your repertoire. And sweet dishes, I can imagine, as well. Absolutely, yes. I mean, it, it's quite salty because it has salt added to stop, or not stop, but slow down the fermentation um, because it is a live product. So without the salt, it would just continue to ferment. Yeah, kind of little umami paste um, caramel. Abso absolutely. But um, I mean, you, sorry, I was digressing because you asked about the quinoa. No, 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 that's all good. That's all good. Um, I mean, the thing, the thing about quinoa is there are, in South America, there are many different varieties of quinoa that grow, um, many of them in, at very high altitudes. So they actually grow in quite cool places um, and also quite dry places. And then other varieties are grown down closer to the coast. Um, so there is a very wide range of different quinoa varieties that are suited to different sort of climatic and environmental conditions. Mm. And and in fact, Essex, Essex is one of the driest parts of the United Kingdom. So quite well suited to the quinoa varieties that, that like relatively dry conditions. And um, yeah, they certainly, quinoa is not a, not a tropical or subtropical crop. So it doesn't need the heat of, of those sorts of crops and yeah, grows very well in our sort of temperate and fairly dry conditions. Yeah, amazing. Um, and then I wanted to speak about your naked oats because I've seen a lot of chefs uh, really enjoying these and, and using them um, in like risottos and things like that. So, so what is that product? So the naked oats are a variety, or, or there are several varieties of oat where the the husk of the oat 
naturally falls off when it's threshed. So when you harvest the oats and they're threshed to separate the, the grain from the rest of the, of the plant, uh, traditional oats or, or standard oats will keep the husk on them, whereas naked oats, the husk comes off. And that means that uh, they're immediately ready to be consumed. You don't need to polish the husk off or do any further processing to them other than just cleaning them out of the the rest of the sort of bits of the plant that, that come in with the harvest. Mm. So really, they I mean, we sometimes refer to naked oats as the rice of the north because you can cook them just like rice um, and like a rice grain because they don't have a husk. They can just be cooked as they are um, and they cook like a very like a brown rice, um, mm. really, if, if anything, cooking slightly, slightly faster and can be used in, in dishes in a very similar way. Um, so they are, we, we also have naked barley, which is a, a very similar thing. It's a, a barley grain where the husk naturally falls off. And with barley in particular, the husk is actually, um, can, can aggravate your um, digestive system. So you really have to get the husk off before you eat it. With oats, it's more just a question of the husk being a sort of, quite sort of tough and, and stringy. But with barley, you really need to remove it, which is why the barley that we do eat as a whole grain is generally pearled barley where the husk has been polished off mm. but if you if you do that and if you process the oats to remove the husk you can lose some of the outside of the grains you lose some of the taste and nutrition of the grain whereas with these naked grains um, you get the whole grain just without the husk and all the flavor and nutrition that that brings they, they sound they sound really incredible um i'm definitely gonna buy well that that um fermented fava bean paste 100 percent going on the in the shopping uh the shopping basket and naked oats great yeah it's it really is good stuff fantastic uh but lastly what is what do you think the coolest things you you've seen kind of done with done with your pulses oh <laughs> where where to start really i know um, it's really tough i mean we're, we're always just amazed and inspired by the things people do with our pulses and it's a, it's a fantastic thing with social media obviously you can see um, people cooking things up and then sharing photos and descriptions of, of, of what they've created so we've um, I mean it, 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 it's really hard to pick out <laughs> particular examples but people have produced fantastic curries and dolls with all of our pulses um, we we actually we've we've got a new variety of pea that we just had a small quantity of last year, called a it was a pink pea, mm-hmm. um, and we actually asked our um, customers who we offered the chance to try this pea, we asked them to help come up with a name and the, the name that um, we chose was the flamingo pea, <laughs> and we also asked people to to experiment with it and use it in different ways, and people made an amazing hummus including a, a black hummus with these flamingo peas. Um, which was yeah, that's probably one of the most extraordinary things we've seen done with yeah. done with our pulses. Oh, lovely! But it, it's also a real inspiration to the farmers we work with, um, and one farmer in particular says he just he just loves the fact that he can grow his crops. Um, he, he he's actually the the farmer who uh, the first farmer who grew organic peas for us, um, Mark Lee in Shropshire, and he grows his crops. And whereas he used to send a, a a lorry full of peas off and he had no idea where they were going mm. he he grows peas and sells them to us and then because he's linked in with with our social media he sees um 
what our customers do with them. So he sees the, the full sort of life of his peas from the field through to what our customers are cooking up with them. And he just finds that you know, really inspiring and really sort of completes the story of what he's doing as a farmer. Yeah, I can imagine. Much more rewarding. Yes. And you say you can buy all your products on Hodmadods um, online, but you're also stocked in some retailers as well, aren't you? Yes. So we, we sell online through our website, hodmadods.co.uk. Um, but we also, we've always sold um, into independent retail. We don't sell into any supermarkets, but we're available in a wide range of whole food shops, farm shops and small local retailers. Okay, great. Um, so my final question is something I ask all my guests um, and it's what is your favourite seasonal ingredient right now? Okay, so <laughs> it's funny that our products are, are you know, they're, they're foods that in fact aren't seasonal because they're harvested on an annual basis and because they're all dry products that keep well, they, they last throughout the year. So I'm going to have to choose something outside of our range um, because they don't really count as seasonal products um, and in fact I'll choose something if I may that's that's not even British um, because something I just absolutely adore are blood oranges um, yeah and I, I, when blood oranges are in season at this time of year I really can't get enough of them so uh, <laughs> I would have to choose those for this time of year and and maybe suggest that you know they could be used in a in a salad with some carlin peas would be a really good combination and a way of using um, blood oranges from Sicily perhaps with um, some British grown pulses. Lovely, lovely. Thank you, Nick. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It's been a, a real pleasure talking to you. Since speaking to Nick, I've ordered a box of goodies from Hodmadods and I cannot wait to try them, especially that fava bean umami paste. Oh gosh, it sounds so good. But now... We are joined by our resident forager, Fergus Drennan, who is speaking about birch trees and specifically tapping the sap, which sounds fascinating and so easy to do. So this is Fergus's last clip on wild edibles, as this is the last episode of series two. But if you want to catch up on all of Fergus's wild food clips, then there's a whole page on my website with all the clips. So you can listen to them all in one go and become a foraging expert. Okay, maybe not quite because Fergus has been at it for about 20 years. But if you want to check out that page, I've linked the exact page in my episode notes. It may still be winter. It may still be cold. But with each day, the light is increasing. And with that, there are signs of spring. And one of the most wonderful signs of spring is the sap rise in the trees. So the past four or five days, I've been collecting sycamore sap. But what I want to tell you about today is the birch tree. And I will talk about collecting birch sap, which is a sap that starts to flow a little bit later than the sycamore. But the reason for talking about birch is that not only is the sap delicious and edible, but you've also got the leaf buds, the leaves, the male and female catkins as well, plus some amazing fungi associated with the tree, both growing on it and around it. So the leaves in the birches you're most likely to encounter, which would be the silver birch with its kind of white distinct trunk, the downy birch, slightly hairy leaves, and perhaps more kind of in a more kind of ornamental tree is the paper the paper birches 
So those leaves, when they're very young, they can go in a salad. I mean, they're used more medicinally, um, kind of urinary tract infections and a good diuretic as well. The best way I've had them is in a uh, as a kombucha tea, which was kind of quite nice, kind of offset that kind of bitterness. Then we've got the catkins, the male ones, which are kind of really evident now. Again, they're kind of quite bitter. And I mean, I have fun with those because they look a little bit like twiglets. So I uh, boil them in a change of water and, and cook them in Marmite and dehydrate them. That's great fun. The female catkins that hold the seeds... They're the ones that seem to get in your socks and in your hair and all over the place in, in, the, in the autumn. Um, you can actually cook those in, in, in honey and, uh, and kind of fry them and put them on your cereal. I did once. It just about worked. But the main thing with birch is the sap. So the sap rise in the birches is really, in the southeast of England anyway, from the end of February until the beginning of April. And traditionally, you would drill into the trunk and put in a, a tube. So anyway, that's the traditional way. What I prefer to do is, if you've got a bit of siphoning tube that's, um, I don't know, about the diameter of your index finger or between that and your little finger, and you cut off a bit of branch of about the same diameter, you can put squeeze that over the branch, push it over the branch, and then run, run that down into like a two-litre bottle. And in 24 hours, you'll get about a litre or a litre and a half. If you drill it straight into the trunk, you can potentially get four litres of sap in 24 hours. So whichever way you prefer, really, I, I just find it's a bit more gentle on the tree to do it from the branch. And you can do multiple branches, so you can still get the same quantity or even more in the same amount of time. Now, the question is, why would you want to do this? Well, it's a lovely spring water refreshing drink in its own right once you've you've gathered it but also then you can go on to turn that into a really really delicious wine but perhaps my favorite thing to do with birch sap is to reduce it down now unlike maple which can be up to i think about three almost 3.5 percent sugar it's a lot, lot less in the sap of birch. I think it's about 1% or, or maybe one and a half or something like that. Anyway, it's a lot less. You know, when I, look, when I was started tapping birch trees like 20 years ago, you, you couldn't get birch sap commercially, but now you can. So people are really coming to value its flavour and, you know, it's become a commercially viable thing. So what is there to like about that flavour? Because it's, it's very different from, say, kind of maple. It's much more complex. It's much darker. It's much kind of richer in a way. And it lends itself to not just being put on pancakes. In fact, you probably wouldn't do that. You might you might do that. You can add it to kind of ice creams, but it, it's just so different from maple syrup. Um, it's got more elements of balsamic kind of flavours and it's great as a meat glaze or salad dressing. Yeah, I love it in, in ice cream and panna cottas and, and things like that. So sap is there. The trees are very common and abundant. I highly recommend to give it a go this year. It's a real way to celebrate the arrival of spring. That's all for today's show and that finishes off series two. 
If you have any suggestions for future guests or feedback on what you'd like to hear more of or less of, then please do send it my way at doorsteppodcast at gmail.com. See you very soon for Series 3.